Um, hello, everyone. This is another Cyber Teacher History podcast coming from the beautiful Channel Island of Guernsey. And today we're very fortunate to have Dr. Jilly Carr from Cambridge University join us to talk a little bit about some of the fascinating work that she does, and in particular that links to the occupation of the British Channel Islands. So, Jilly, a very warm welcome to you and great to catch up with you again. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. Nice to be here. Yeah, brilliant. So, Jilly, can, can we start by asking you just to tell us a little bit about your actual role at Cambridge University and what, what you do almost on a day-to-day basis? Uh, well, I'm an associate professor in archaeology, but I also do research and publish in the fields of uh, history, Holocaust studies and heritage studies. And my, my day-to-day, in a way, there is no typical day. I mean, most days I'll be spending 97 hours doing my emails, but in yeah. addition to that, I'll be writing lectures, giving lectures, marking essays, meeting students, talking about their research, going to a committee meetings, etc. There's it's it's pretty varied. Every day is different. It sounds like you really earn your dollar. Oh blimey! I, do. <laughs> I think well, we're the same profession then. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and on on that note, did you um, did you always want to pursue a career and linked to archaeology and or history then, or is that something you'd, you'd set out to to do? No, well, um, to oh gosh, no, it wasn't. I completely accidentally fell into it. Um, I did my A-levels in maths, physics and chemistry okay. and realised during that process that um, that was not the best choice for me because I was an all-rounder, so it's very hard for me to choose. And I ended up doing very badly in my A-levels and I was going to, I wanted to study psychology at university, but that really wasn't any huge commitment yeah. or any deep-seated desire. And so I got into doing archaeology through clearing and I ended up loving it and doing really well. And I got the highest marks in class and I uh, got a first class degree. And then I went to Cambridge to do my master's and my PhD. And now I'm an academic at Cambridge. And so I suppose that's, uh, a lesson for everyone that when you find your real path in life, you can excel at it, even if when you take the wrong path, you don't do so well. Yeah, that's fascinating to hear. And I think that will be really interesting to some of our listeners, particularly those that are obviously thinking about their future career path against what they're studying currently in education. Um, And I know we've talked about this in the past as well, haven't we, that finding something that you have that passion for Absolutely. It makes such a difference to your grades. Once you're doing something you love and you have an interest in, it really changes your grades. And when you're doing something that maybe you're good at and you're okay at and it's all right, Mm. you know, you can do okay. But if you, you know, it's only when you do something that you love that that things change. And and it also, um, we say to our students a lot as well that, once you once you're in that kind of zone, it's it's like the hours aren't onerous, are they? It's um, no, you, you're you not clock watching all the time. No, you're not. Yeah, no, you're not. Yeah. I think the worst thing is to devote your life doing something that you don't want to do, and to to spend your life just sort of, you know, as you say, clock watching. What's the point? Yeah. No way. Not yeah. for me. Yeah, so good worldly wisdom there. Then I think, and does <laughs> just just as a, a, a also of interest, does that archaeology obviously that means you you literally do get your hands mucky and and you've you've done all that side of things as well 
Yeah, I work in the fields of conflict archaeology. So that's um, these days I do. I used to, my, my PhD was in the Iron Age and Roman period, actually. But uh, yeah, um, indeed, archaeology involves partially getting your hands dirty, also studying objects and material culture. But I really bring together in my work a lot of sources from from all multiple angles to work on an issue. So I, I work on World War II archaeology. So I, you know, excavate uh, labor camps and things like that, prisoner of war camps, that sort of thing. So that's my that's my cup of tea of choice. Fascinating. And that I, I take it that's taken you to some weird and wonderful places, has it? Yes, yes. And in fact, um, pandemic permitting, in May, I will be going to Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany to begin a new project. So I'm really looking forward to that. Well, fascinating. And so, so does that make you a fan of TV shows like the Time Team and the Big Dig and things like that? Yes, yeah, I've been yeah. on the Time Team, actually. It was uh, on an excavation in Jersey. And uh, one of the best things about it was the hospitality tent. I had seven slices of cake on the last <laughs> So they looked after you. Oh, yes. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, Julie, now, as well, a, a lot of the work that you, you've been focused on is investigating um, aspects of the occupation of the Channel Islands. Can you, again, for our listeners, could you just explain why this is and, and what it is about this particular episode in history that you found so fascinating and, and prepared to devote such a lot of time and energy to? Part of the question, part of the answer is that my family's from Guernsey, and so hence my sort of natural interest. To say a little bit more about the German occupation, to expand on that, it was a five-year occupation from the end of June, beginning of July 1940 until the 9th of May 1945, so a five-year-long occupation. Uh, It was a very dense occupation, by which I mean that the average numbers Uh, in the Channel Islands represented something like one soldier for every three islanders. And if we compare that to the occupied zone of France, it was one German soldier for every 100 French people. And so we can see the sheer density of the number of soldiers meant that people, meant that armed resistance wasn't an option in the way that it was in France. I mean, first of all, there's no mountains to go and hide in. There's no factories and railway lines to blow up. But also because many people had German soldiers billeted in their houses, you simply couldn't go anywhere and not be seen and not be overheard. I mean, that was very difficult. So you you do see different sorts of resistance emerging in the Channel Islands of individual people or very small groups doing things to to sort of avoid detection. So that's a whole other subject. Yeah. So Um, sorry, you carry on. I was was just going to say in terms of how, nasty the regime was. I I don't think there was a single country in occupied Europe that had a good time. It's certainly true to say that in Eastern Europe, the regime was much harder for everybody than in Western Europe. But in Western Europe, it was still, uh, life was still very difficult with with hunger uh, and increasing starvation with uh, people who opposed the Germans being sent to concentration camps, with yeah. Jews being persecuted, etc. And all of those things happen in the Channel Islands. But there is evidence that the people in the Channel Islands were treated more easily than in occupied France's nearest neighbour. So, yeah. for example, no Channel Islander was executed in the Channel Islands. Okay. Of course, yeah. Once they left the Channel Islands, if they were deported, it's a different story. But we see executions happen in France that we don't see happening in the Channel Islands. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. And invariably, that means that the occupation was a very, very tough time indeed for, for Channel Islanders. And, and I suppose as someone who's looked into that, we're always trying to get that empathy, I suppose, for people's experiences, aren't we? And, and is that kind of what you're about as well? Do you mean uh, getting the empathy of my readers? Yeah, I, yes, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when one writes as an academic, you know, you don't have pinned to your computer instill empathy in your readers. What, what you're trying to do is uncover the truth of what happened and to set out and understand. And I think people who perhaps have not done the archival research for themselves, have not read the archival documents, which you don't expect anyone to do unless they're a researcher, it can be very easy to just sort of read headline news and to, to make false assumptions about yeah. what things were like. Yeah. And so I think there's, you know, when you do research, as an academic, there's a lot of subtleties and interpretation from the archival sources that simply, if one were to generalize and simplify, you, you come to the wrong conclusions. And so I think one of my missions has also been to sort of help people understand the truth of, of what happened and the complexity of what happened, and especially to talk about victims of Nazism, because that's something which for many decades was very much overlooked in terms of not just the memoirs that people publish, but the, the stories that emerged course, about yeah. how we're to understand the occupation. Yeah. And so do you, when you approach subject matter like this, do you come at it with preconceptions and do you find that they change as a consequence of what you're, you're finding out? No, no academic has preconceived uh, ideas, and if they do, they're approaching it wrong. What you come to the archives with are research questions. So your research question, let us, your research question might be, how were Jews treated in Guernsey during the occupation? Or, um, you know, how, what happened to people who were deported from the Channel Islands and something yeah. like that. Now, as you start to look through the data and start to examine the stories of more and more people, patterns begin to emerge. And so that means you can kind of predict what might have happened to the next person you look at, and the next person you look at, and then you find more and more people who confirm the pattern or break the pattern, and that helps you to sort of understand things. But no, if you come with this preconceived idea of, I'm going to look for evidence of collaboration in the files, then that's not how to go about it. Yeah. You start with a question, and you examine the evidence for it, but you don't come with an answer in your head. Do you know what? I'm going to absolutely make sure that our particularly our Key Stage 5 students are going to hear that because it's something that we're always trying to impress upon them. Um, and it's lovely to hear that coming from you in the position that you're at. Um, uh, and again, I think invaluable in terms of what our craft of, of in terms of the study of history. Can if I can if we can move on a little bit? I know that you've also um, you you've set up um, uh, an online archive which is called the Frank Faller Archive. That's right. Um, and we use that a, a huge amount in 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 our uh, our teaching of our students. Again, oh, could you... I'm very pleased to hear that. Yeah, I mean it's a it's Fabulous. a you know and and anyone listening, hopefully if you if you expand on that in a little bit uh, now. I would 100% recommend that you go to that and look at it. It's a wonderful, wonderful resource for us. But could, could you, again, could you just uh, inform our listeners in terms of the backstory to that, what, what it's about yeah, and, and what, yeah. you, what you intended to achieve, really, I suppose? 
Right, so the story of Channel Islanders deported to Nazi prisons, labour camps, concentration camps is a story that was never told and not even told for the most part by those who survived and returned because it was too traumatic to talk about and certainly not something you would talk about in front of women or tell daughters about because, you know, one didn't in those mm. days. And so there were a certain a small number of people who were known to have been deported, but what happened to them was not known. And... I thought it was crazy that we had reached the 21st century and the numbers of Channel Islanders sent to concentration camps and labour camps was not known, that nobody had done the maths. And I thought, I'm going to do it. I'm going to start from first principles. Um, I am going to look through every single source I can find. I'm going to look for records of the Channel Islands in London, in Germany and France. I'm going to go to the International Tracing Service in Germany. I'm going to submit names. And um, over several years, um, I researched the story of every single person I could find who was deported. And the most important thing to me was not only to be able to tell the story of what the Channel Island or the British experience was yeah. in Nazi prisons and concentration camps, because for the most part, where you get a Brit in a camp, there was they were on their own. They were not, you know, because the United Kingdom was not occupied, there were not British people in any number at all in camps and prisons. And so I wanted to find out the experience, but I wanted to gather together in one place every single document that I could lay my hands on in Europe that related to each individual person to provide the truth, the, the proof of what happened to them and for the families as well to... Mm to give them back their stories. And uh, I went through a long process of working with families in the Channel Islands, visiting them, talking to them about memories, about little snippets that had been dropped by fathers, by grandfathers, asking them to um, share with me any documents, photographs, anything. Uh, visited people in the UK who were originally from the Channel Islands and that all helped me to build up the story and I took photographs of every document I could find and put them online and um, built up an archive. There's about 220 people on there now who are deported yeah. to, at, to at least 125 different prisons and camps. So yeah. far bigger number than anyone ever knew. And the joy of putting things online is I have been contacted by I'd say 80% of the families of the people on there who have contacted me from America, Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, yeah. saying, let me tell you more about my grandpa. Thank you so much for putting his story on there. There's so much we never knew. I mean, I'm also interested in um, transgenerational trauma. So to explain what that is, when a person has gone through a very traumatic event, that trauma gets passed on to their children and their grandchildren through growing up with someone who perhaps has symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. And it can give that person problems with expressing affection and love, funny attitudes to food. And so you get things passed down through the generations like eating disorders, like difficulty in forming relationships with other people and marriages that keep breaking up That's because right. you yeah. have this problem um, with your parents showing you love. And there are these, uh, I've spoken to so many families where I've been able to say to them, well, look, this was the story of your father. He was in a concentration camp. And for the child, you know, the adult child, never to have known this story and to finally understand all of these things that have been going on in their lives. And um, time and time again, I am so happy and so moved to have been able to 
help people make sense of their life, but also to help them understand and repair the relationship with what is often a dead parent or a grandparent. And so it's really, for me, not only do I feel I'm honouring those who have had that experience, who have been in concentration camps, but making sure we don't forget either. And for making sure that I think by sharing the story, and for me, I feel like I've, I've in some ways walked by the side of the, that person when they've had that experience, just as an observer, to be able to tell that story to honour them. So, you know, for multiple reasons, it's um, that website is something that I'm very proud to have done, and I continue to add to it. It's, Each time I come across new stuff. I mean, that's fascinating. I, 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 I didn't really have a, an idea in terms of that side of the whole story as well. And so it's, in, a, in a way, it sounds to me, it's like you've give, that's part of the therapy, you know, by, yes. by investigating that, that past. And, and that's going to have been of invaluable assistance to, to the relatives of these individuals. But I can remember yes. the, the, the first time... Um, I, I, we went onto the site, and um, there's this wonderful section where you've got the the uh, the, the little pins on all the the, play, the camps in Europe, and it was you know we we, we took a, a few seconds to take it all in because it's the sheer volume of places yes. that um, in yes. Europe that, that that the Nazis used as, as as camps, but equally that Channel Islands went to. So yeah, really really fascinating and uh, and wonderful and. I also remember when I started teaching where I'm at, we, um, to cut a long story short, Julie, you did a documentary, didn't you, on, yeah. on, on a couple of Channel Islanders and you were, you were tracing what happened to them. And uh, one of them was uh, jo- Joseph Gillingham. Um, and, uh, and again, much, much of what you've said, I recall, you know, that part of the story. But um, so fascinating, fascinating aspect to that. Yeah, and going with his daughter to find his grave in Germany was um, an incredibly emotional journey. And um, to be able to find uh, Joseph Gillingham's body for that family is something I'll never forget. And, you know, probably one of the things I'm proudest of in my life, because to to find somebody who's been lost in the Nazi camp system and to identify the grave and to sort of give that back to the family is... um, it's very important, but yeah. very powerful for them as well. And there's so many, there's so many parts of that documentary that are are so moving and um, uh, and in, in, incredible to think that they hadn't, they didn't really, as I understand it, they didn't really know what had happened to Joseph Gillingham, did no. they? And then no, your no. your research and and your your efforts with with his relatives enabled that story to be um, closed, I suppose, in many respects and. There's that wonderful part. Well, I don't know if "wonderful" is the correct word, really, but the moment where you you actually visit the the memorial, the the stone, of and 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 that aids to that closure. So yeah, yeah, inc- yes. in, incredible, incredible, incredible. Yeah. Um, Jilly, I know that you've got a new book on in the pipeline. Can can we talk about that? Is that something? Yeah, of that, course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Would you like to uh, Would you like to um, clarify what that what, what you're doing in terms of that respect? Yeah, well, I'm still on the um, I'm still on the story of victims of Nazism in the Channel Islands, and I'm following the story this time of the 2,200 Channel Islanders who were sent to civilian internment camps in Germany during the war. And um, I held an, a museum exhibition at Guernsey and Jersey Museums in 2010 and 2012 on this subject. And um, the for me, the interesting thing is the objects 
that were made and the artwork that was made by those who are interned. And as I'm an archaeologist, I'm used to interpreting objects. And for me, I can kind of read those objects and that artwork and to use them as a lens for telling the story, an angle for telling the story. And um, so that's what the book's going to be about. I mean, I've previously written, you know, the museum catalogue, which was just a, a heavily illustrated um short book for for those going to the museum exhibition but this time it's going to be you know the the stonking great book <laughs> well no i mean you know it, it's going to be i say yeah. you know it's, it's going to be a normal length but um yeah i really look forward to telling the story and since uh, over the last 15 years i've been interviewing i think i'm about 70 people who were deported to wow. the the camps and so many of them are no longer alive and so you know, they, they entrusted me with their story because they knew that one day I would tell their story through the book. And um, I'm going to bring together the interviews, diaries, memoirs, um, objects, artwork, everything I can find and um, and tell the story. So I've, I've got a, a book contract to write that and my sabbatical starts just after Easter. So uh, fantastic. Get down to work. Yeah, well, well, best of luck with that. And I know you, you've been kind enough as well to to allow some of the students that we teach to to to, to aid with that project. And um, uh, and they've already really got the bit between their teeth in terms of wanting to be involved with that. And uh, it, it's fantastic for their own studies as well. So yeah, brilliant. So I, I suppose it's a case of watch this space and uh, maybe hopefully if we have a we have another chat at some time we can have an update on that in terms of how it's all going that'd be fascinating to find out yeah sure happy to Julie I'm just wary of the time but I have got another couple of little questions I'm going to be a little bit cheeky um, uh, and put you on the spot a little bit but could, could I ask if in terms of the occupation who from the occupation in the period that you've studied would you most like would you most have liked to have met because I know historians aren't necessarily into into who's a hero and, and who isn't but in terms of the occupation is there anyone that you would have liked to have met for me that's a very easy answer uh, easy question to answer and the, and the answer is frank feller um he was uh you know now one of guernsey's best known resistors um thanks to not just um his book, a copy of which I have here, very well thumbed. Yes, uh, indeed, yeah. <laughs> it lives on my desk. It's called The Silent War yeah. and published in the mid-60s. And it tells the story of his experience in Nazi prisons. And he made it his, his business after the war, not only to visit Channel Islander families where their loved ones had died in the prisons that he was at because there were clusters of Channel Islands. Channel Islanders and certain prisons, um, but also he he fought for people who had been deported. He fought okay. for their memory. He fought for them to get compensation in the sixties. He personally dedicated so much of his life to telling that story. And um, he died when I was a kid. I never knew him. I never met him when I was a kid. I didn't know his story. So you know there were, and I suppose anyway, you know, as a kid, he wouldn't have. If I, if I had met him as a child, he wouldn't have told me that's not the sort of thing that you tell yeah. a small child, you know. Yeah. So um, I, I wish I had known him as an adult and to have been able to interview him. And, and Julie, for those listeners who don't know, he was actually involved in active opposition, wasn't he? He was part of the Guernsey Underground News Service. That's right. That's yeah. right. He and his friends worked on uh, that, that underground newspaper. Um, Frank was actually a journalist in the uh, for the Guernsey Press and the Guernsey Star. Uh, 
he, and so what you find with many people in the Channel Islands in terms of resistance is they use their daytime job, their daytime skills to resist in that area at night. So on, by day he worked on the newspaper and by night he worked on an illicit newspaper and he would listen illegally, illicitly to the BBC News and he would write it down and spread it through the Guernsey Underground News Service. So he was one of several who worked together to do that. Yeah. Uh, including Joseph Gillingham. Including Joseph Gilliam, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Fasc- again, fascinating. I, you know, the the the, the problem that I always have when I, I'm talking to to people who are so, you know, and I say this, if, if I was inspirational as yourself and enthusiastic about the subject. Is is where do we call the where do we call the line? Because I think I could talk forever, but um, <laughs> but we we are limited. So I'm just going to finish off with, um, and this is particularly for. I'd, I'd say aspiring historians or potentially students who want to go on to study history. Would, would, you, would you have any top tips for them getting the place at the university that they'd like to go in terms of um, what it is that you're, you're looking for, for, for from potential students, potential undergraduates? Well, uh, always the first things you look at are the school grades and the report from the teachers, but also assuming those are okay, those are strong, also in your personal statement, the those who are assessing those applications like to see evidence of commitment, demonstration of commitment to that subject. So are you someone who simply studied it at school, you found it interesting and that's it? Or are you someone who has read particular history books, um, gone to particular places to learn about the history, volunteered in a museum, um, gone beyond your school curriculum, gone beyond... Uh, your your sort of school hours to show that commitment gone the extra mile and so for example if you can discuss in your personal statement books that you've read and ideas then that always counts for a lot wonderful and 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 I, I would my assumption is that students particularly from Guernsey because we have this such unique history and this accessibility to archives and or organizations that are linked to history that they should be making the most of that as an opportunity as well Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it would probably, I mean, let's say, um, to give a a different example, a student who wanted to study politics at university would have a far greater chance of writing to one of the deputies, um, you know, in the island to say, can I come and work shadow you? Whereas if you were someone living in the UK and you wrote to an MP, you would have a 0.00 chance of, um, of getting a spot. So, I mean, you know, in a smaller island, especially with a lot of personal contacts, there's much more potential for really being able to get some experience. Indeed. And again, a very unique characteristic of living in the Channel Islands as well, that. Yeah. Yes. Wonderful, yes. wonderful. I'm sure that's going to be of invaluable advice to to, to the, those students who are listening in on this. So, Julie, believe it or not, that's it for, for today. Um, I always say time flies when you're having fun, and I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed catching up with you and talking with you. Uh, we really appreciate you you coming along today to talk to us um, and for, for your inspiration, the way you inspire us, really, and, and your enthusiasm for the subject and the love which just comes across all the time. Um, so many, many, many thanks. Best of luck with the upcoming book. And as I said, hopefully we can we can get back in touch and, and, and have a follow up against that. But that's it for today from from Cyber Teaching, the history podcast. And uh, Jilly, stay safe. Um, many thanks once again and take care of yourself. Thank you. You're very welcome. OK, all the best. Bye. OK, bye now.